Today I want to start a new series. And the new series is called Real Church. And do you ever wonder why, if you look in your Bible, and if you're paging through the New Testament, there are two of the biggest books of the, Bible, of the New Testament are written to one church. And they're written to one church that's called the Corinthian church, or Corinth. The reason that they're written, so much is written about this church, because this church is seriously messed up. Okay, they've got problems. They've, they've got what you call issues. All right? It's not that they don't have their positive things about them, but Paul spends a lot of time saying, okay, here's what you need to do now. I mean, most of the teaching that we have about spiritual gifts is because they were abusing them. They were just going crazy in their services. They were just speaking in tongues every five minutes, just spouting off all over the place. And Paul says, okay, here's how you do this. And then they were getting involved in you know, food sacrifice to idols, and they were getting involved in sexual immorality, and they're getting involved in all these things. And so Paul writes the book of 1 Corinthians. In fact, there's a, a zero, what we call it 0.5 Corinthians that he wrote to them before, but it hasn't, we've never found that letter. He wrote them one, and then he wrote them one letter in between 1st and 2nd Corinthians that we've never found. So he's constant, and he stops his travel plans and says, I really got to get to Corinth and figure these guys out and fix what they're doing. So Corinth is a church that has issues. Paul cares about them greatly, but they're a church I think that most of us can identify with. We don't have to look at this and say, um, you know, Oh, there, it, it, all these people in the Bible, I think sometimes people, well, people in the Bible, they've got it all together. They were so close to Jesus and everything was so fresh to them. No, this church had issues, which is a good thing for us because we get to learn what God wants us to do with all these issues. We get to understand that there are things going on that we need to completely understand, that we can learn from them. Some of the things that were going on in Corinth, I already talked about, there was division in the church. There were people saying, um, my son likes to tell me this. He found the top ten, and I haven't told you all of them, but the top ten things you're supposed to tell your pastor is a, kind of a joke. Like one is, you're, that was a good sermon, but you're no John Piper. Uh, you know, just a constant, you know, joke, you know, like this, and that was a good speech. Or what book of the Bible are we preaching on? Even though your pastor's been preaching on one for two months. Things like that. And, but what the issue is, is that people were saying to Paul, you're no Apollos. You're no Cephas or Peter. You're, you're not as good. Do you know that one guy who's on TV? Man, he's got a good voice. He's got really good graphics. Why don't you have that, Pastor? Okay, that's what Paul was facing right here. I mean, this is the Apostle Paul. The writer of most, uh, much of the New Testament was re- receiving from these people, we like these other people because they're flashier. We like these other people because they're the way we like it. They preach in a style that, you know, we can identify. We feel more fed by them. Okay, so there was division in the church. Sexual practice. There were people in the Corinthian church that because of their Greek mindset, we're talking about this, thought they could go to a a temple, have sex with the temple prostitutes, but as long as their mind was staying pure, their body could do whatever it wanted to do. Okay, that sounds like a 14-year-old argument. (laughs) Just, just, Just a second. Like a teenage argument. Well, I didn't really mean it, but... Okay, so they had this in their heads and they had sexual immorality that's gone. So a lot of what we have about sexual immorality comes from Corinthians. People say, why didn't Paul talk about homosexuality and all these other things? And, or why didn't Jesus talk? Well, the, the issues were in the Corinth church. And the, so it's talked about a lot here. 
There was backbiting of leadership. We've already talked about this. People saying to leadership, um, yeah, we don't want to listen to you, Paul, in this. In fact, we're going to sit and complain about our leaders all the time. The Corinthian church was great at that. Uh, they had a lack of giving and a bad attitude about giving. So chapters 8 and 9 are going to talk a lot about giving because they had kind of a bad attitude. In fact, Corinth was one of the richest churches around, one of the richest areas of the world. And yet, eh, we don't need to give to anybody else. Those poor people out there, this does not care about them. And lastly, they had the false teachings. They were always looking for the new teaching that was better than the old, the old teaching of Paul. They had all these bad teachings. So we get, we're going to talk about some of the false teachings that are out there. They're still out there today. And a lot of them have to do with, you know, we need to add more legalism onto people. We need to have more rituals for people and things like that. But there was these super apostles that were coming out and causing problems. So we're going to see a lot of things in Corinthians. And that's why I talk about real church we're going to see how Paul talks to them and how God wants us to be as a church and how God deals with us in spite of the fact that we're not perfect. The Corinthian church was not perfect, but if you look in 2 Corinthians 1, 1 through 11, Paul identifies them, and this is the part that I think that we struggle with today because we can't handle this term. What does he say? Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth. I just described to you about these people. What does he call them? With all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia. He calls them saints. Have you ever said to somebody, I'm no saint? Have you ever heard anybody say, that person's no saint? Have you accepted Jesus Christ? Have you made him the master of your life? Guess what? God calls you a saint. It's important that we understand the concept that saint is what God makes us, not what we are on our own. And, and so I, I think this has come from the fact that, you know, we have a process to make somebody a saint. You know, Saint Hubert, there is actually a Saint Hubert. Uh, just for the record, he is the patron saint of hunting. Um, because I have, I have a picture, I should have put the picture up again, but uh, uh, it, he was out, this is in Europe in the eight, 900s, I think, and he saw a crucifix in the horns of a deer. And he shot the deer. <laughs> nice for him. Okay, and now he's the patron saint of hunting. So you're supposed to pray to St. Hubert if you want to shoot a deer. Um, you think I'd be a better hunter because of that, but I'm not. So, but the concept is, is we have this system of who is a saint and who's not a saint. That's not the Bible. That's not Paul. Here are people that are struggling with sin, but he calls them saints because they have been declared a saint by God. What a wonderful thing. What a wonderful thing that we can say we are saints. And sometimes I think the fact that we don't want to be called a saint is because we just want to wallow. But if, we, if, if the enemy allows us to think that we're not saints, he allows us to think that we can live a lower level of life than we should. If we say God has already declared us to be a saint, then we should be called to a higher standard. We should be called to a greater thing and living out what we truly are. So, he is calling, he, he's calling out a church. So let's just read the rest of the passage here in 2 Corinthians uh, uh, 1, 1 through 11. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia, grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, 
who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in affliction with the comfort with, what, with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it's for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it's for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experience in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He who delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope, and that he will deliver us again. You must also help us, you also must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on your behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. So I want to talk today about God's comfort. Okay? If we look up comfort right now, you would probably find uh, a comfort setting, a comfort bed, a comfort pillow, a comfort things like this. It basically, when you think of comfort, you think about a life of ease. Okay? You think about floating on a lazy river, about 75 degrees, everything's good, no worries, no complaints. Okay? And we think about this comfort, but we want to talk about what is God's comfort in the times of life? How is God able to comfort us, and how are we are we supposed to comfort one another in this time? You see, Paul is writing this in a very difficult time of his life. He is writing from a time of ministry that, and service to Christ. He goes as far in verses 8 and 9 to say that he is at his extreme time. And he says he feels like he's under a sentence of death. And we don't know what happened to him. Uh, we don't know what, what, what goes on. We don't ever hear the story of it. But he says things have gone on so bad, such a severe external or internal problem. And so he says, I want, I, don't want, I want you to be aware that things in my life aren't going very well. And now he's about to say, but here's how you can be comforted by God. So he's not writing from the time where everything has gone well. He's writing from a time that things are not going necessarily well in his life. And he wants to bring comfort to other people. So he wants to show them what true comfort is. And I've talked about the fact that we, what do we look for when we're going through a tough time? What do we look for for comfort? Some of the things that people turn to, some people turn to their job. When everything's going miserable in their life, they just pour themselves into work. They become just that 80-hour work person. They become workaholics. Some people turn to their family, which is a good thing. The job isn't a bad thing either. They turn to their friends. Or sometimes people will pull away. And just kind of go on their own. Another thing that sometimes people turn to, and I, I saw this from another pastor, is people turn to food. Comfort food. I mean, there's a term, comfort food, right? There are foods that we eat, it's like, I'm feeling bad. Bring on the french fries. Okay? Bring on the ice cream. All right? That's, that's what's going to comfort me right now. Also, we look for substances. There's a reason that they call one alcohol southern comfort. Okay? There's a reason for that. It's, it's intended to say that this is supposed to give you comfort. We look for that. We look for pleasure-seeking. Maybe we just want to numb ourselves to what's going on in our lives. But we need to understand that there are some helps in this world, but nothing is going to comfort us like God's going to comfort us. Nothing is going to take us to the higher level of where God wants us to be 
like God. And so there are some things in life that we should do. We should look to our family and friends when we're struggling. We should look to things like that. And it's okay every once in a while to have a cheeseburger, all right, if it makes you feel good. I'm not saying that that's not, but that's not going to be your ultimate comfort. If you're looking to food all the time or you're looking to something like that, it's not. And obviously intoxicating substances and looking for pleasure-seeking and just all that is not going to do it for you. You need to find true comfort that comes from God. So what happens? What are we looking for? First of all, we need to understand that God provides ultimate comfort. Um, he looks at this first word. He says, if you look in verse 4, he says he talks about affliction. We first have to talk about what is affliction in this world. Well, first of all, I talk about affliction most of the time in the Bible when it talks about suffering. And I've heard most of the time, it's so different than the way we talk about suffering. Because when we talk about suffering, I say, are you suffering in your life right now? What would most people say? Yeah, my, my arm is not doing very well. Or you should see my relative that I have. Or my neighbor. Or my job. Or the fact that my checkbook. Okay? But most of the time in the Bible, when they talk about affliction, they're talking about persecution for their faith. In fact, when Paul talks about here, that is the number one thing he talks about. That when you have faith, there are times that you're going to be afflicted. There are times that you're going to receive affliction because the enemy is trying to fight against you. And when I talk about affliction, I talk about the fact that if you're a Christian, there are times that you're going to be alone where you are. There are times that you're going to be segregated from the population, if you will. There are times that you're going to be... Now, in other countries, if I was preaching the same sermon, we would be talking about times that you have physical attacks against you. Times that you are thrown into prison. And that may come in our country, okay? But for right now, I think what happens with Christians is we kind of get segregated off into a corner. That's nice, nice pat on the head. Now don't talk to us, okay? Don't bother us with that Christian stuff. And I remember even when I was in high school, there were times when there was a don't tell John party that went on with my friends. I found out about it, but don't tell John because we're all going to do things that John doesn't want to hear about, all right? And it was just like, you know, there's this concept that sometimes you're just on your own when, you're, when you hold on to the faith. Because the world is going one way and you're going to suffer affliction. There's going to be times that says, you know, why, why am I struggling like that? Why is this affliction? So he's talking about this, but the real term here is an inward pressure resulting from the outward circumstances of life. I, I think that's, a, that's the actual definition of the Greek word here. It's an inward pressure that's from the outside. What do we say? Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That's a big lie. And we all know that. Sticks and stones, you can deal with that. You know, you go to, you go to the doctor and you've got something wrong and they say, well, put it in a cast, it'll be okay in you know, six weeks. Great. All of a sudden you're just feeling depressed or, or life is going bad. I'd rather have the broken bone. And so we look at this and we need to understand that there's an inward pressure that happens something going on for the outward pressure, inward uh, problems from the outward circumstances of life. It's mostly from our Christian experience that Paul's talking about, but it's also from the simple fact that we live in a sinful world. I mean, if I went around here and said to everybody, who here is taking medication for something? Okay? A, a lot of us are. Who here has something in their life that they have to overcome, whether it's a family upbringing or something that we have or something? We all do. Maybe, maybe our parents died at a young age and it was, we were an orphan or whatever. Life, life can be hard. But the, uh, and the outward circumstances can cause pressure inside of us. 
And Paul is trying to say that your affliction, God can handle every affliction that we have. And then the next thing we need to do is define what is comfort. Because comfort is not going to be what we think it is. In fact, there's a lot of Christian preachers that are, that are honestly giving this the wrong idea. Comfort here, the, first of all, the word appears nine times in the, the chapter or the section we just talked about. There's nine times he says comfort. And it appears 29 times in 2 Corinthians. But you know what comfort is? The comfort he has is a stiffening agent that fortifies one in heart, mind, and soul. In other words, it's not the fact that you just go, ah, I'm just wonderful life. That's what we think of comfort, that everything's going to go away and we're just going to have everything just smooth. You know, God is going to bless you because you're a child of God. You'll never have want and you'll never be poor and you'll never be sick. No. The Bible says that God comforts us so that we are an agent, this stiffening agent and a, and a, fortifying in our life so that we can handle any problem that comes about. It doesn't say all the problems are going to go away. It just doesn't say that. I mean, does that mean God doesn't heal? No. Does that mean God doesn't miraculously transform our life? But what it's saying is there's nothing in this life that God cannot comfort us through. Okay, the worst thing that can happen. I know that everybody... <laughs> okay, right now, I, I go get the mail at the end of our driveway. And you know what I do on the way back from the mail? I take all the political advertisements, and we also have our garbage can right there. Okay? So I take all the political advertisements, and I put them in the garbage can. So we don't even bring them into the house anymore. Just kind of a... And the reason is, and not because I'm a very political person. I love to talk politics, which is really difficult as a pastor, because I only talk to other pastors. So. Um, but we... If you read these things, I mean, these, everybody's horrible. Okay? Everybody's horrible. If we elect this person on November 9th, life itself will end. The, earth, the sun will stop shining. I mean, if you read these things, it's like, if we elect this person, they are not, and then you read the other person, if we elect this person, it's over. Over. I mean, it, it's not just that we will not prefer it. It's over. I have Christian friends God-believing Christians who believe that if one person is elected, God will not be able to move in this country. Really. God handled Nero Caesar. He handled Caligula, who, who was a guy that put his horse in as one of his leaders. I mean, this guy was nuts. You know, Nero I mean, did all this stuff. God can handle who gets elected. I'm not trying to say we shouldn't be involved, but this whole concept of God can't handle this, and God can't get us through this, and, and if we don't vote this certain way, and, and all this stuff can be so overwhelming because people are looking for this life and thinking that this life is going to do it for us. Or that some leader, if we just put the right leader in there, if we had the next JFK or Ronald Reagan, everything would just be great. Guess what? It wasn't then, it's not going to be now. Only God can comfort us. Only God can bring us hope. Yes, get involved in this world. Yes, be politically minded. All that stuff is great. Yes, we should do all these things. But stop putting our hope and trust in anything but God because God is the only hope that we have. Amen. The comfort, so the comfort that God is talking about. So when it says God will comfort us, he is talking about the fact that God will give us the resolve. God will strengthen us. God will bring us through. I know some people that struggle with physical issues. 
Uh, muscular dystrophy. I have a very close friend who struggles with muscular dystrophy. He can barely just move his arms right now. One of the greatest guys I like to hang out with. Why? Because God helps him get through it. God has not stopped him from being in the chair, but God has given him the strength to get through it. All right? God may heal him. We're still praying that God will. But that doesn't mean that God can't strengthen him and get him through through comfort. So it says in verse 3, Blessed be the God of, and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. First of all, if you read this now in a Corinthian setting in the city of Corinth, they laugh at the concept that God cares about you. Has anybody ever studied Greek mythology? I know my kids, kind of, they'll study it in school. Greek mythology, the Greek gods are just weird. And they don't care about you. All right? They just don't care. They're up in heaven going, eh, whatever. Here, throw a lightning bolt at somebody. They, they just don't care. And the concept that God our Father cares about, and in no religion at this time would you ever call God your Father. Would you ever have the intimate relationship with Him? And you never think about God with mercy and God of all comfort. It's saying that God does great things for His people and God loves us as a father loves his child. We do things for our children that we would do for no one else. I've talked about it before. I've had people in our church that say they have a new car. I've never walked up to them and said, hey, can I drive your car? And then if they say no, say, well, why not? Well, but if my own father had a car, I think I'd have a better shot at driving his car than it would have just some random stranger, right? I'm going to try that just randomly. See somebody with a nice car. Hey, can I drive your car? Why not? I'm a good guy. Well, I'm not your dad, you know. Uh, but I think that we need to understand that our dad will allow us to do things because no, I mean, no father should ever allow their kid to drive a car. I mean, if you think about it, think about our, us at the age of 16, all right? Just that, that should scare you right there. But we do because we love and we pray God help them, all right? Help them to pay attention for like two minutes so they can drive. But we do this because we love, and God our Father is there to comfort us. God, and you know what the other interesting thing? Verse 9, if you jump ahead, it says, We felt like we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us relied on ourselves but God. But what is really interesting, but on the God who raises the dead. Have you ever thought to yourself, no one can help me right now? Okay, you look around. God raises the dead. The same God who raises the dead is the same God who's there to help you in your time of need. I don't think of anything greater than raising of the dead. All right? The same, Jesus who raised, the same God who raised Christ Jesus from the dead, it says, dwells in us. And the same God who raises the dead is the God that we pray to, the God of all comfort, the God of all mercies, the God who loves us. Can God handle this? Can God transform us into the people we need to be? Yes, because he is the God who raises from the dead. Paul puts it in perspective. I look out there and I see a crazy world. We don't know how the world's going to go, but you know what? God raises from the dead. He can handle it. Just put that into your head. God is a God that comforts. You strengthen, resolve. I don't know how I can get through this. You can't, but God can get you through it. All right? There's nothing in your life that he can't get you through. There's nothing in your life that he can't handle. And it's important that we understand that, that whole issue of that he, is, he will deliver us. On him, I like this too, he delivered us from such deadly peril and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. God has delivered us in the past. 
And we can all think back of a time that God got us through something. Maybe it was a relationship issue that we had. If anybody's ever dated, it means that you've probably also been hurt by dating. All right? I remember dating a girl and thinking this was the greatest girl in my life. And uh, she decided that I wasn't the greatest guy in her life. All right? I know that's shocking to everybody here. You're like, come on. Why would I go there? All right. But the issue is, you know, I thought I'll never get over this. Okay? It's, you know, what, almost 30 years later? I've gotten over it, okay? God has gotten me through it. And, and But we think at times that we get to the stage and we think we're not going to make it. God can get us through it. God can comfort us. God can strengthen and resolve us to get through this. And he has done it in the past. And when I get discouraged, I need to be reminded, he did it then, John, he can do it now. He got you through this, he'll get you through that. He got you your first job. You don't think he can handle get you another job? He got you through this. He, he helped you do this. He can help you through everything. But another big issue we need to understand is not only is God is the God of comfort, but God is the God who comforts us so we can help others. Verse 4 is a really key verse on that. It says, Who comforts us with all our affliction. We talk about the afflictions. So that we may able, be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Here's the issue with God. God comforts you. The math is very clear here. Our, let's say our affliction level is an 80. God comforts us at 160. Do you understand what he's trying to say here? So that we can give 80 to somebody else. God's comfort is greater than our, our affliction. It's not that God's just going to squeak us through. He gets us to the level where we can help other people. Paul is very clear about this. It is so that we can look out and say, have sympathy for others. Yes, I've gone through that. Yes, I understand. But God got me through and he'll get you through too. I, I, it's, it's so important that we have this. It's so important that we have this relationship with one another. It's not, the affliction happens in our life. It's not something we desire, but God uses it. Comfort, God comforts us out of his love and mercy, but he also creates in us a new resolve and a new person so that we can be there for other people. He wants us to be there. Comfort that we receive in our time of afflictions gives us the perspective and spiritual gift to help others in their time of trouble. It's not just simply the fact that we can say we understand, but God in his comfort is now able to reach out to other people through us. I remember when um, Erica and I, were, she was pregnant with our second child, and she had a miscarriage. Okay? And we were in the church at Summit Church. And all of a sudden, all these people appeared out of, out of nowhere, it seemed like, saying, I've gone through this. I've gone through this. God has carried me through this. God has carried me through this. God has carried me through I didn't know all these people had that. I didn't know. But, but they said, God took care of us, and we're here to take care of you. That's what the church is for. You come here. And I think so many people here come to church, and they look around, and they say, these people... You know, obviously your pastor, you don't look at it this way, but you look around and you say, these people have it all together. I've had people tell me that. Well, you're a pastor. You've got everything perfect. I've heard that. Or you go to church. You're a Christian. Everything just goes right for you. Really? I missed that note. And so, or we, we don't understand. Or nobody's going to understand the struggle I have. That's why it's so important to be in part of small groups and, and have the relationship that we have in church is because we need to understand that God is here 
God is with us and God is using us to comfort one another and to strengthen one another. We need each other. It's so hard to get people sometimes to come to church. I, I, it's, it's, it's a struggle as a pastor. If I said, we're all going to your favorite restaurant and I'm buying, and you're going to re- have the best food that you've ever had, it's not hard to get to because we know we're going to get something out of it. And we're gonna have a, it it's going to lift us up and make us, you know, it's going to be enjoyable. But when I say, I'm going to bring you to church, you're going to have uh, music that's going to transform your soul, preaching that's going to transform your soul, other people are going to pour their lives into you. I don't know, the Vikings come on early. And, and I think to myself, shouldn't this be easier? And, may, and there's two parts to this. We as a church need to be looking for opportunities to pour into one another. I still appreciate the fact that when Erica and I went through this, there's all kinds of people. I remember when my, young, my oldest son had seizures and he was in the intensive care at the children's hospital with seizures for 45 minutes long. I remember people just coming up to us and helping us through that time. But we had the church, we had each other. And even Paul talks about, he says, he says, I write to you as the church of God, the holy gathering with all the saints. We're in this together. You were never intended to be a solo Christian. There is no concept in the Bible of people outside of church serving God. It doesn't exist. Well, I just serve God on my deer stand. Heard it? On the fi- when I'm fishing on the lake. Okay? Just for the record, the nicest deer I've ever seen have been an opening hunting sitting out by our cabin. The nicest deer, they know to come here. They know that we're not going to shoot them here, so they just come and sit out there. But, so that's just, a, so for next week, for everybody should be here, don't go hunting. But, on Saturday you can. But anyways, the concept is, the concept is, is that we need each other. It's worth it. And we need to pour into one another as a church. God has comforted us in the past. God comforts us now. And God has put us in a union of saints and the church of God, the gathering of God, so that we can comfort one another. We exist for that purpose. Christians, uh, suffering becomes unbearable burden when we feel alone and abandoned. But when we have the help of others, we can get through it. So God created the church God ordains the church. God empowers the church. God fills his church with his spirit so that the church can minister to one another. And you know what's even better, even more about this? We have so much comfort of God that flows into us. It's a spiritual gift. We can even go outside the church. When you're in a community, what's always interesting to me, I talked about kind of being excluded as a pastor or as a Christian sometimes, but when people are in times of trouble, all of a sudden they want to talk to you. And that's great because we have comfort. We have something to give them. And it's not ourselves. It's the comfort that God brings in our lives. Verse 11 brings up another thing. How can we comfort one another? And how does this comfort go? Through prayer. Verse 11, Paul says, You must also help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. When we pray, God does great things. Do I understand how prayer works completely? People say, okay, if I pray 10 minutes, does God work? And then at 15 minutes, does he work? And why does God need us to pray? Can't he just do it all himself? You know what? God says pray, and great things are going to happen. I'll just tell you that. That's, and you say, well, how does this all work? I don't know. 
I'm not God. I'm not looking for the position. It, it, it's God says, and Paul says it right here, for us, you must, help, you must also help us by prayer. And you think to yourself, you're the Apostle Paul. What do you need? He needs the prayers of people. How much more do the rest of us need prayers if the Apostle Paul needs prayer? He's saying, you helped us. And he says, when you do this, I think he gives us a clue of why God wants us to pray, so that many will give thanks in our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. God wants us to pray. He wants us to, do, he wants to answer our prayers. And then he wants us to tell everybody about the great blessing that God has done. Why does God heal? I'm, I'm so convinced of this. Why does God do great things? So that we can tell the world of his glory and his wonder. That we can bring people to Jesus Christ. That we can say that we serve a great God. We can say these things because it says right here, he blesses us so that we may give thanks on behalf of the blessing granted us through the prayers of you. So we have the opportunity now. When we pray, we want to... We want to really pray and say, God, do great things through us so that we can tell others about it. Verse 5 kind of goes a little further. It's, For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through, we, through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. We need to understand this thing. We call ourselves Christian. Who suffered? Christ. Why did he suffer? On behalf of us. The Apostle Paul came to Corinth. Guess what they did to him at Corinth? They didn't just say, hey, that's great. We'll just all accept you. No, he had to go through a time of suffering to bring them the good news of Jesus Christ. He says, I did it for your sake. But we share abundantly in the comfort too. He says, Christ suffered and we suffer, but we also share abundantly in Christ's comfort. God's comfort overflows to Paul and to us who are afflicted. This allows us again, he brings this whole concept of overflowing. The concept that it's abundantly, that term right there, abundantly means the comfort is greater than the affliction. Remember that. When we go through something, God gives us more comfort than we need so that we can pour it out to other people. It's just a huge concept that he has. Um, verse, lastly, it says, God builds our faith. If you look at verse 10, He delivered us from such a deadly peril and He will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. We're going to go through afflictions in this life. Things are going to happen. Things are going to happen in our life, whether it's through our Christian ministry because of our Christian faith, we're going to be afflicted, or whether we go through life and we are afflicted by the, the general things that happen. Okay, maybe it's a disease, maybe it's a financial thing. Maybe it's just the part of the fact that life, goes, that life has struggles. I have lots of friends in the housing crisis of 2008, pastor friends that are, godly men that lost their homes okay through the housing crisis you say well god should have taken you know no they suffered along with everybody else but you know what god was with them to get them through it they also tell me about the great miracles that god did through that that god still got them through it even though they lost their homes god strengthened them and brought them through it and you know what we need to understand that through the afflictions and through god's strength through us we have hope that he will deliver us again he delivered us once, he'll deliver us again. God doesn't change. God didn't forget our phone number. Okay, have you ever had somebody call you, you know, say, hey, I lost my phone, lost all your phone numbers, please tell me what your phone number is. God doesn't up in heaven go, ooh, I forgot where Bemidji is. Uh, somebody tell me where that is again, by Canada, right? You know, he doesn't, he's not up there confused. 
We don't serve a God who's confused. We don't serve a God. He delivered us once, he'll deliver us again. And this is also a faith-building exercise that when we go through a time of struggle and we tell other people, God has delivered me in the past, he'll deliver me again. You know what that does for other people? It strengthens and encourages them. It also allows us to tell people that we, that we are serving a God that we trust. Because most people in our world don't know who to trust. Look, again, go back to the political ads. People are saying, we got to have this right person or this person or this person or this person. There's so much trust that these people are going to save us. They're not. They're fine people. There's many fine people out there. They're doing their best. But only God can give us comfort during times of need. Only God can carry us through. And when we have this steadfast resolve in our life, a peace that passes all understanding, the Bible says. When we're going through the roughest time, when we can look at others and say, I know that God has not abandoned me, and He is going to strengthen and make me better through this. You have no idea what that does for your witness to other people. You have no idea because you said, God has delivered me in the past. I can't wait to see what God's going to do through this. That is what he's calling us to do. The Apostle Paul said he was at the point, do you understand, he's writing this, when he said, I felt like I had a sentence of death. He's not writing it as the triumphant pastor who's got the, everything going for him and I'm buying my fourth plane now because everything's going great for me. He's writing it as the pastor who's just been destroyed by ministry, who's just been crushed by life. And he says, God has delivered me in the past. He's going to deliver us again. You can, you can bank on that. Why don't you stand with me right now? If our prayer ministers could come forward. If, if you're here today, we believe, like I said, in the power of prayer. We believe that God is here to transform your life. And the biggest miracle that can happen is the God who raised Jesus from the dead wants to come into your life to, right now and transform you. He wants to remove the power of sin in your life. He wants to forgive you. He wants to make you, re put you back in the shape that you were intended to be. You were created to be so much more. But sin has wrecked our lives. And God is here to restore us to the way we're supposed to be. He's here to take the sin away. But He wants us to turn our lives over to Him so He can start the restoration process, the reconciliation, the, the sanctification in our life. And if you've never made that commitment today, the things that I'm talking about today, about receiving God's comfort, aren't, aren't there because you're not wanting God to do that in your life. So you need to make that commitment. But for everybody else, God's comfort is available. And we just preached on this. God, through the prayers of the people, God's comfort is there for us. We believe in this. I, I want this week for you to be overwhelmed as a pastor with prayer needs. Okay, if you look in your, in your thing, it says prayer at Crossroads North. Send the church your prayer needs. We have a group of prayer ministers that are available to pray for you at any time during the week. If you'd like to be a part of that group, let me know and I can put you on that list. But we need to understand that I want, we want to pray because we believe in it. We believe that God transforms through this. The Apostle Paul said it. We believe it today. And we have prayer ministers available for you to have someone pray with you today about any need that you have. But for everybody else, you know what? Whatever you're going through today, we could sit down and interview every single person and there's something going on in your life. Could be a family issue, could be financial, could be just whatever. God is there for you. 
God is there to comfort, to strengthen, to guide you, to get you through. And he's also there to say, you know what? Now pour it into somebody else. So we should be coming to church for two reasons every week. And I say the first one is how can I help somebody else? Now that's a different tack than most people take. Most people go looking for a church. What can you do for me? Not, church should do something for you, yes. But what can I do for somebody else? How can I reach out into somebody else's life? I see somebody, I want to talk to them. Maybe you're the only person that says hi to them this week and smiles at them. Maybe everybody else in their life is mad at them. You say, I'm going to reach out to somebody. But the second thing, we come so that we can receive the ministry of God in our lives and the ministry of the church. We need to be a church that, that experiences God's comfort in our life and lets it overflow into other people. Let's make that resolve today. Lord, we thank you today. We thank you for the gifts of, of comfort in our lives, God. The spiritual gifting that you have given, that you are the God of all mercies, the God of all comfort, our Father, who loves us more than anything. And God, because you love us, you transform our lives, God. You take us through tough times, God, but you make us better. You make us the people we're supposed to be. You give us more than we need, God, so that we can pour out to other people who are in need. And you bind us together as a people, God. Lord, let us become the people that look to you for comfort, the God of all comfort. But let us also look for opportunities to be the body of Christ to others. We ask this now in the name of Jesus. Amen. Altars are available for time of prayer. Our prayer ministers are available. Make sure you avail yourself the opportunity, otherwise you are dismissed.